Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Today marks our 71st message in the letter to Romans, the greatest letter ever written, if you ask me, for, in my, if my opinion counts anything. In the mid-1960s, a Welsh preacher, one of my heroes, named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, preached 366 sermons on Friday nights through the letter of Romans. So for those of you who last week clapped at the fact that we were going to finish Romans 16 this summer, um, we're, we're like one-third of the way through Martin Lloyd-Jones' pace. So, so there. I love... Uh, letters, you know, in this age of email and texting, uh, there's just something about getting an actual letter, isn't there, in the mail? To see somebody's handwriting written on an actual piece of paper addressed to you is powerful. And as a result, I've tried to get in the habit of writing letters to people, even just short letters, just to um, encourage them and, and let them know that I'm praying for them. And one of the great struggles I have is opening and closing letters. I always know what I want to say to the person in the letter, or just a short handwritten note, but I always feel a bit awkward opening and closing the letters. What do you say? I I usually resort to the very creative, dear blank, hope this letter finds you doing well. (laughs) And then when you end it, sincerely, in Christ, love you, hope to see you soon, comma, Brad. But the Apostle Paul, who was writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had a wonderful way of opening and closing letters. The second part of Romans 15, I think, is the beginning of the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's a kind of hodgepodge. It's like a utility drawer, in a way. He's saying goodbye, but he's saying a few other things. And he's giving us a glimpse into his purpose of ministry. And so while we may be tempted to say, well, the end of the letter is not quite as doctrinally rich or thick as the rest of Romans, and that is certainly true, friends, there is gold for us to mine in Romans 15 in the second half of this chapter and and in into 16 in the coming weeks. So let's let's look here in just a moment at Romans chapter 15. We've seen the gospel already displayed in baptism Praise the Lord, Michaela, for God's work in your life. And by the way, Michaela is, is that Caleb? Are you? Oh, Caleb. Caleb and Michaela. Um, Caleb was a member of Crosspoint and is now in the Army and moved on. He's at Fort Carson. Is that right? Fort Stewart. And that's where I was, Fort Stewart. And um, they are getting married here in Columbus on July 6th. So praise God. Big, big summer for Michaela. Getting baptized, getting married. Praise God. Good to see you again, Caleb. Um, we're, we're just thankful for the Lord's work in your life and for your guys' engagement and upcoming marriage. Um, we're going to see the gospel dis- hopefully preached, and then we're going to come together, as is our custom, on the first Sunday of the month. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And if you're a believer in Jesus, 
If you're a, a Bible-believing believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table with us and to celebrate the gospel through the bread and the cup. But here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and then we're going to work through verses 14 through 33, and we're going to re- work through it very quickly. I have eight truths about gospel ministry that I see in this text. And again, we're going to work through quickly to give us adequate time to come to the table. But I want to pray first, and then we're going to, we're going to work through this text uh, a few verses at a time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your, your grace to us, for the privilege to gather, for the body of Christ, for the glory of the gospel proclaimed in baptism, for the word read and sung and prayed and preached, and for the word displayed in the table, the gospel displayed, the, the body of our Lord broken for our sins, and the blood spilled for our redemption, and the promise that He shall come again, and that we proclaim His death until He comes, and that Jesus will finish the work that He started, and that He will bring all of His people home. And we, we lean forward into this truth this morning. For my friends in this room, Lord, stir our hearts, make us more in love with Christ and His bride, and for, for people in this room who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would see the gospel and that it would be so overwhelmingly, irresistibly beautiful that you would melt their hard hearts and draw them to faith in Jesus. And we know that this requires complete, unmerited, unconditional, sovereign grace on your part, Lord. This is something you must do. You must give what you require. We can't muster it up on our own. And so, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know Jesus, I pray today they would see Him and trust in Him and believe in Him because of what You have done in their lives as a result of our time together. Now, help us as we work through this second half of this chapter. May we understand ministry and gospel community and what You've called us to do better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 14, let's read. We're going to stop along the way. Eight truths about gospel ministry as we look at into the heart of Paul's gospel ministry. He writes this and he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Let's stop right there. Remember, Paul has, has not visited the Roman church. He didn't plant the church in Rome. But ironically enough, even though he didn't plant the church in Rome and he has no personal relationship with them, he certainly heard a lot about them and certainly they benefited from his other letters that he wrote that certainly were circulating around the church at the time. And so Paul is writing to the Romans and even though he didn't know them personally, this is his thickest, longest, most doctrinal letter here in Romans. And he says to them with great confidence about the work of God already going on in the Roman church that they are able to instruct one another. So I think truth number one, as we get a glimpse into gospel ministry through the eyes of Paul, truth number one that I want us to see is that gospel ministry is a church-wide effort. It's something that every Christian should be involved in. Paul says there at the end of verse 14, that we are able to instruct one another. We all have a role to play. Certainly God has given gifts to the church. He's given pastors and teachers to, to, to unfold. He's given elders to, to teach the Word of God regularly. But in another sense, in a very real sense, we are all under shepherds 
We're all to teach one another. We are all able. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, if you've been regenerated by God, you have something to offer to other people to help them grow in Christ. I want you to think along those lines. I want us to be a church. I want us to think of the church as a kind of a truth echo chamber in the best sense of the word, an echo chamber that, that what we speak to one another just kind of bounces off the walls and it creates this, this kind of incubating culture where people can grow. And this is something that all of us are to participate in as we instruct one another. And this makes me think about this idea of, of counseling in, in the life of a Christian or life of a church. One of the things that we do a lot of here is, is kind of sort of informal pastoral counseling. But I want to I challenge maybe a, a kind of paradigm that some of us have is that counseling or biblical counseling or spiritual counseling is something that you need to get from a trained clinical professional. Now clearly, I think that there is a place for that and thank God for good biblical counselors who have been trained uh, clinically to care for people's souls in, in deeper ways, in deeper situations. But I think that the vast majority of what most people think that they need counseling for is something that can be handled, in fact should be handled, through the life of a gospel-centered, truth-speaking, local church that understands the Bible and applies it and speaks it to one another. I want us to think in, in sort of three levels of, of how we should speak truth to one another, a kind of counseling ministry, so to speak, that should just be uh, present and in the local church. The first level is just the lay level. People, just regular, ordinary believers in Jesus that are part of the church, that when we have coffee together, when we gather together in each other's homes for community groups, when we meet to just encourage one another, I think that is counseling. We're counseling one another's soul. We're exhorting, we're admonishing, we're instructing one another. And we shouldn't neglect that. And oftentimes people that, that uh, find themselves in very difficult situations where they need deeper counseling are there because they've neglected the regular rhythms of the Christian life and community where they're, they're not putting themselves in this kind of echo chamber. So I think that's level number one that all of us should be involved in. Secondly, there certainly are situations in the church where, where pastors uh, who are maybe more trained in the Word uh, are there to equip and encourage. And we do a lot of that here. And, and we, want, we want you to know that that's available for, for you. And then thirdly, I think that there is a place for clinically trained, professional, vocational, biblical counselors who, who have a specialty in caring for people's souls in difficult situations. But I think of those three levels... I actually think that probably 80 to 85% of what most of us face in life should be able to be handled by the first level, just, the, just being a Christian in community. And then, of course, we need, there are times when we need our shepherds to come in and, and, and help us think through situations that are, that are more difficult. And then there are certainly situations where we thank God for trained biblical vocational counselors. But friends, what Paul is, is giving us a picture of here is a local church that is able to instruct one another. And so I, I want to commend that, that perspective to us to, be a, a, to see that gospel ministry is a church-wide effort. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So look at that phrase there in verse 15. He says, I've spoken to you very boldly by way of reminder. Paul knew that the Roman church already knew the gospel, but he wasn't afraid. There was no hitch in him to say that they needed to be reminded of the gospel, which, which brings us to our second truth, is that we, Christians, we need to be reminded of the gospel. I hope you have noticed that virtually every time we gather, whether it's on a Sunday morning in the message in the things that we sing, in the things that we pray, whether we gather on a Wednesday night for a midweek fellowship, that we're always trying to remind ourselves to bring to bear the truth of the gospel. And Christians need, I think that everybody in this room, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, I think the thing that you need most is the gospel. If you're not a believer, I think that what you need to realize is the good news news of the gospel, that God is holy, that you, like every other human being, are fallen. You have sinned and you have offended God. And God is just and holy and righteous. And your biggest problem in the world is that you will stand before God someday. And what will be your plea? But the good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way. He has sent His Son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life, to obey Him in every way, and then to lay down that life fully man, yet fully God, on the cross to bear, to substitute, to absorb God's wrath on your behalf if you will trust in Jesus and not yourself. And then Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death, sin, the grave, and all of the consequences of our fallenness, and now commands you, dear friend, you, every one of us, from every tribe and tongue and nation, from church background, from non-church background, people that have had a terrible upbringing, people that have had the best upbringing. Friends, the cross levels all humanity, all of us, no matter where we come from, stand equally in need of God's grace. And the only way that you can meet God one day and be reconciled to Him and not judged by Him for eternity is through trusting in what God the Son did to reconcile you to God the Father. Friends, everybody needs that. And we need, friends, if you're not a believer, I plead with you, that's what you need to know. That's what you need to hear. You say, I've got questions. So do I. I'm not saying you need complete understanding. What I'm saying is you need to consider that God is holy. You're separated from Him. And the only way back to Him is through faith in His Son. But I think I've been a Christian for a while. You're happy about that. The pastor of the church that you're at has been a Christian for more than six minutes. But I also think that I suffer from a dreaded universal disease. And it's called gospel amnesia. And, and um, I, you'd be shocked at some of the things that run through my mind on a weekly basis. That, just, that I just can forget the gospel very quickly. And I can become very anxious about a situation. Or I can become very despairing of, of where I am in life and where I stand with the Lord. And, and when I'm doing that, I think like other Christians, I'm forgetting the gospel. And so I, I need the gospel to be, I need, it, I need to hear it afresh. 
One of the things that um, we do when a person joins the church at Crosspoint, to be a member at Crosspoint, we ask them to sit down with one of the pastors and to tell us how they became a Christian, and then to just very briefly, in their own words, just tell us what the gospel is. And that's not meant to be a kind of theological quiz or an intimidating environment or at all. We just want to make sure that people that are joining the church, as best we can tell, are truly born-again Christians. We think the church is made up. I mean, this building is a church, and sometimes we, like, the the church is not this building. It's it's those who have been made alive by the Spirit of God and that are gathered together. That's the the church, and we, we, we separate into local churches, and so we're together with all Christians in the world, but yet this local church is not just everybody that's sitting in this building. It's those who have been made alive and that are joined together in a kind of commitment to do the Christian life together in this local assembly. And so back to the meeting with people that are joining the church, and it's, it's amazing. I think it's almost, almost every single time when I hear somebody say the gospel in front of me, even if it's just a, a kind of very elementary and very basic explanation of the gospel, it just, it stirs my heart. And it's hard to sit there and listen to somebody tell you the gospel without just being overwhelmed with with just thankfulness. And, and oftentimes, I think people, you know, people, I'm crying, and they're like, oh, am I saying something wrong? No, <laughs> I'm just so thankful for the gospel that, that, that God would do this in the way, not only that we are saved, but the way that we, the way that we fight sin, the way, that we, the way that we fight against a residue of this, this old man that wants to keep coming back to plague us, that's been crucified, but sometimes comes back and plagues us. The way that we fight that is by remembering who we are in the gospel, what God has done for us. That's who we are. It's, 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 it's this gospel that we need to be reminded of. And Paul Paul. Paul's not ashamed to remind the Roman church boldly of the gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Elycrium I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So let's let's talk about what Paul is saying here in verses 17 through 19. He speaks speaks really just about his pride in what Christ has accomplished through him to bring. He was especially called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to bring them to faith in Christ and obedience through word and deed, through the proclamation of the gospel and through the authenticating of his apostleship through signs and wonders, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But what I want us to focus on right now in verse 18 is what Christ, he says, this is what Christ has accomplished through me, which I think leads us to this third truth here is that God works through us. He works through Paul, and He works through us to bring about His will, His sovereign will of redemption in the hearts of people that He has called to Himself. The way God does that is through 
us. In this particular church, we, we love doctrine. I think we love the sovereignty of God. We, we see it in the scriptures and we extol it. And I think we extol it rightly. And I think that that is a, a wonderful accent that the scriptures clearly have. And it is an accent of the life and the culture of this church. But even as we accent God's sovereign will and power in salvation, we must not forget the means by which God uses to bring about His sovereign will. And in this instance, God has brought about His will to save a great number of Gentiles, which He prophesied about in the Old Testament, which Paul mentions a little bit later. He has brought about His will, not by waving a magic wand and just making it happen, but through the ministry of Paul. And he continues that to this day. God is bringing all of His people home through ordinary Christians like us and churches like Crosspoint. What a privilege that is. What a privilege that is. That's what, that's what we're doing here. This, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6. I love this passage because I, I think it gives us a clear picture of, of God's utter sovereignty. But let's read John chapter 6, verses 35 and 40 here in just a moment, together with what we just read in verse 15, about, or verse 18, about how Paul, Christ has accomplished this through Paul. And I want to say also, he accomplishes his will through his people as they take the gospel. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So you see this, like there's this interplay in the Trinity. You've got the Father's will, and he's sending the Son to accomplish his will. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is the Father's will. This is Jesus' mission. For you military guys, this is, this is Jesus' op order. This is, this is paragraph three, execution. This is, this, is, this is exactly what the Father has sent the Son to do. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now that's a, that's a universal 30,000 foot view of the purposes and will of God and salvation to send the Son. He has a people. Jesus is going to get them all. He's not going to lose anything that He has sent out to get. I think there's lots of implications for that verse. He, Jesus does not fail. Jesus doesn't make salvation merely possible. He actually accomplishes it. Jesus will get all of His people. But the way he does it is through people like Paul and you and me and the Roman church and the Philippian church and the Colossian church and every Bible-believing church since then. So friends, we are the way, the means by which God accomplishes his ends. That, friends, that's spectacular. Come on, we read this, oh, Paul, man, he's doing what Paul... what. Christ has accomplished through Paul, and we think about these glorious things. But friends, there are people in this room 
who have been used to accomplish the fulfillment of John 6 in the lives of people in this room. That's amazing. What better privilege can there be, man? This world will pass away, but souls will live forever. And, and Paul is saying here is that he's saying, he said, it, he said it a little bit earlier, that this, this offering of what I have done, what Christ has done through me, is an offering of the ministry to the Gentiles that I'm offering to God that is fully acceptable, sanctifi- sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So friends, every time you you witness to a friend, every time you encourage somebody in the Lord, every time you share the gospel, John 6 is being worked through you. Every time, young mother, that you speak the gospel to your little child and you woo their heart to Christ, you, Christ, is accomplishing his will through you. Friends, global, glorious, universal, heavenly, eternal things should be happening every day in the life of this church. And man, it's easy, isn't it easy to forget? Because, you know, we just, we're, we just get in the monotonous rut of another week. But eternity is there. And God works through us to bring about His, his will. In, in just dusty little very incomplete places like Crosspoint. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing. One little thought here before we keep reading. He says in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around, his ministry would be fulfilled. What, what about signs and wonders? Uh, this is... Uh, not directly from this text, but I, I'm going to take a little aside uh, just as a kind of pastoral opportunity to instruct us as a church in this area because this is something that as I look at the greater evangelical world um, in, in our country at this time, that I, I am occasionally concerned about. And it is this idea of what role the signs and wonders play in gospel ministry. It is, I, th- I think, an area of confusion that I want to address pastorally, not so much here at Crosspoint, but in the broader church at large, which I think just certainly does affect um, Christians in our setting. This is not a a debate about whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are still available. Uh, We've taught on that extensively. I think for the most part that they have ceased. I don't say that to put God in a box and to say that God can't do whatever He wants to do. Certainly He can. I do think that the spiritual gifts that we see in the New Testament, uh, I do think that they are not normative in the church. I think that they were given at a particular time but in, for, to authenticate the ministry of the apostles. But in particular, when Paul speaks of signs and wonders here, the healing of the dead, the healing of the sick, or the raising of the dead, and a few instances in Acts, and then the, the healing of the sick. Now, I think that those were particular, particular signs and wonders that had a particular place in redemptive history to authenticate the ministry of the apostles. And I think we also see that in the Old Testament when Moses was, when he was leading God's people out of Egypt, out of Egyptian captivities, we saw Moses performing signs and wonders to really authenticate his power to, to Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt and, and God used this as a kind of sign of his power. And then 
when we see here salvation coming in Christ to the Gentile world, we see the apostles authenticating their ministry through signs and wonders. And I think we see this in the Scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this is, it gives us a kind of hint about the purpose of signs and wonders in the New Testament. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2. He says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness... With, by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. I think that verse 4 there is talking about how God bore witness. What is He bearing witness to? He's bearing witness to the ministry of those who heard from Christ, which is the apostles, in verse 3. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, we see Paul talk about the signs of a true apostle as opposed to the false apostles. They were plaguing the Corinthian church. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so I think that the, the, the healings that we see in the New Testament and the more miraculous things that we see, and the, really the cluster of those things that we see in the New Testament, are are given at a particular time in redemptive history to validate, to authenticate the ministry of the apostles in that particular context as they were writing the New Testament and spreading the gospel in the known world at the time. I don't think that they are meant to be normative for our time and day. That does not mean that we don't pray for God to heal. Of course we do. We read in James chapter 5 where if there are people that are sick among you, let, let him call for the elders of the church and let him be anointed with oil and let him pray. I clearly believe that God still does miracles. He, he heals people. But this, this kind of cluster of signs and wonders that we see in the New Testament, I don't think is normative today. And I am a bit concerned about some movements in the American church today that seem to put a major emphasis on seeking signs and wonders. And if I could just be real pastoral here, I'm concerned about the influence that they have on young people, particularly through their music ministry and their worship ministry. There's a church out in California, which is where I'm from, my home state of California, and it's called Bethel Church in Redding, California. And it is, it is a heretical, non-gospel preaching church. And they have a very, very popular music ministry called Bethel Music and Jesus Culture and others. And some of their songs, are, are, they're, very, they're very gifted musically. Very well done. And some of their songs aren't particularly heretical. They may be a little fluffy, but they're just you know, songs that people listen to. And one of the ways that I think they sort of mainstream the, the theology and the practice of that church is through their music ministry. And I just, as pastorally, I just want to warn us about that and say beware of this, that that church and churches like them that put a huge emphasis on signs and wonders uh, almost always do not have the gospel. They do not have the gospel. Now I realize that we have Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters in this city. I'm not talking about just your average, good, faithful, Bible-believing Pentecostal and charismatic. I have some differences with them, but I think they're wonderful people who love Jesus. And we've got some issues on secondary issues of doctrine. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about what I consider to be a heretical, uh, non-gospel ministry that I think is, is 
is really influencing a lot of young people through their music ministry. And so I, I would just encourage us to be, to be aware of, of that. Okay, back on the track of Romans chapter 15. Okay, some of you are like, what just happened? <laughs> if you have more questions about that, I'd be, I'd be glad to, to answer that. Just in, And I want to certainly follow up with you if you have questions about it. God works through us to bring about his will. And friends, we don't need signs and wonders anymore because we have the word of God given through the apostles whose ministry was authenticated by signs and wonders. And now we have the living and abiding word of God. The problem with signs and wonders and people that go after signs and wonders unwittingly, I think, in an honest zeal to, to, have, to, to desire all that they think God wants to give them is that they unwittingly undermine the authority of the word. And now they want some special manna from heaven or they want some special revelation or some special prophecy and they confess that the word is true but they, by their practice they deny it and it undermines the sufficiency of God's word. And God uses us as we bring God's word to bring salvation to people as we share God's word, which is powerful unto salvation. All right, let's keep going. Verse 20, he says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he's quoting here Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And that's a prophetic word from Isaiah about the Gentiles who would receive the gospel in the new covenant, and they did. And obviously, that prophecy has certainly been fulfilled and is continuing to be fulfilled daily as Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying here that he doesn't want to just hunker down in Antioch and just build this megachurch, or he doesn't want to just stay in Jerusalem and build this megachurch. He wants to go somewhere where people don't know about Jesus, which leads us to this fourth truth I see in our text, is that we must have a burden for those who don't know the gospel. That that's, that's just has to be part of the regular heartbeat of any gospel-centered local church. And this is both local and global. Neighbors and the nations. You notice that we, we, we send a, we're sending a team off to Uganda tomorrow, and, and there's after this, there's a, there's a a lunch for people that might be interested in going to East Asia with our ministry team. And sometimes people might say, oh, well, what about the people here around Columbus that need Jesus? Well, friends, we, we're involved in that as well. A, a year ago, I was just thinking about God's grace to us. A year ago, we sent out about 80 members of Crosspoint to help plant Midtree Church through Will Hawk, who was one of our pastors on staff here, and is now pastoring Midtree Church in Midland, Georgia, about 15 miles away from here. And Will was telling us the other day that about 50 and maybe even a little more than 50% of the people that are now attending Midtree Church are people who never attended Crosspoint. So they've got about 160, 170 adults in worship, and a majority of them are people that were not from Crosspoint. Many of them that didn't have any church background. And so through the missional impulse of churches like this, there's new churches that should be planted. And, and certainly on an individual level, friends, people are being invited to church all the time, hearing the gospel, being invited in to hear about Jesus, or just being witnessed to one-on-one. -on -one. And that is the regular rhythm, I believe, of every gospel-centered Christian in church. 
Friends, is there someone that you know? Let's not just hide behind, you know, oh, I, I go to a church, they send teams out, and we plant churches, and all that, it's wonderful. Pastor preaches the gospel. Friends, this is for every individual Christian. Is there someone that you know that doesn't know the gospel that you could witness to and share him with, or at, at a minimum invite that person to church to hear the good news of Jesus? The answer to that for every one of us is yes. And we must have a burden for those who don't know the gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. And the reason he's referring to in verse 22 is the fact that he was so busy taking the gospel to the rest of the known world at the time that he didn't have time to come and hang out with the Romans who he knew already had the gospel. Verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Which brings me to our fifth truth about gospel ministry from Paul here is that we don't retire from ministry. We don't retire. When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he was about 60 years old. And he's still on his horse. He's 60 years old. And by the way, very likely, if Paul would have gone to Spain, he never actually made it because he was, he was captured and sent to Rome in prison. We'll talk about that in a second. He was not only 60 years old, but he would have probably had to learn the language in Spain, which is Latin, which he likely didn't know. So he was 60 years old, ready to start learning a language so he could take the gospel somewhere else. Contrast that with American Christian culture, which says, oh, I've arrived, and I'm going to retire, and I'm going to do whatever I want. We don't retire from ministry. Man, some of you that are, that are older, that are up in your sixth and seventh decade, have such juice. You have such spiritual nectar in your life that you can pour out for the nourishment of somebody's soul in this room, man. Come on, man. Come on. Don't be the type of person who's just casually connected to your church because you're enjoying retirement so much. Give your life to the, to the church. You don't retire. Paul was 60, and he was going to learn Spanish. Or Latin, or whatever they were speaking in Spain in the first century. <laughs> Rosetta Stone. We're listening to audio tapes as he's going to... Verse 25, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they, also, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Leads me to truth number six, is that gospel ministry is fueled by the generosity of God's people. We've been a church for 14 years now, and we, we had a meeting recently just to look at the finances of church, and I, I, the finances of this church, and I just can't tell you how grateful I am for your generosity uh, I, I think this has been an area of negligence for me personally as a pastor in my teaching ministry. Um, I have not preached very often, if at all. In fact, 14 years that we've been a church, we planted this church in April of 2005, and I can count on less fingers than I have on one hand the number of times that we've actually preached or taught specifically on giving, and I, I think that's to my shame and detriment. But despite that, God has been so gracious to our church. And so we see in this text here, Paul is commending and he's calling for Christians to, to give 
for these poor Christians in Jerusalem. There's a lot we could say about this. No, no, just note Paul's heart for the poor. That should be on the heart of every Christian. We don't want to give just so that we can build ourselves nice buildings or rock climbing walls or having cool stuff. We want to give so that we can push more money out to give more money away to the advance of the gospel, to the care of the poor. And, and let me just say that before we move on, because I haven't really preached on giving adequately in 14 years, is that if you're a Christian and you're part of this church and you're not giving, just be exhorted by this text to give. To give, to give to gospel ministry in your local house, your local storehouse, which I think is the local church. It's been Jennifer and I's practice for 26, 25 years now that we've been married to give at least a minimum of 10% of our income, not just generally to Christian ministry, but to our local church. And, and the Lord has been gracious to us over the years, and he's been gracious to this church. Let's keep going. Verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, listen to this, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. To strive. This word strive means to put yourself in the place of the one that you are fighting for and to fight together with him for prayer to God for the sake of their ministry. Which leads me to truth number seven is that gospel ministry is fueled by prayer. I've told you the story before about Charles Spurgeon Maybe the greatest evangelism, evangelist in the history of the church, that Baptist preacher in London in the 1800s, the greatest evangelist in the history of the church after the, the biblical times, and he would take visitors oftentimes to his, that were coming to his church, and he would say, do you want to see the power plant of this church? And he would take them downstairs to the basement. And in Victorian England in the 1800s, the way that the, the buildings and society was powered was through these boiler rooms. And he would take them to the basement of the church where people would be praying, and he would say, they were praying for the service, and he'd say, this is the boiler room. This is the power plant. This is the, this is the electrical switchboard of the church, the prayers of the people. May we be a church that prays together. We're starting another midweek fellowship this summer where we're going to gather together and half of our midweek fellowships when we're in the sanctuary is not just about teaching but about praying. Oh, that we would fill this room with saints this summer from this church who are gathering to pray for one another and the ministry of this church. That we would strive together through prayer. That we would pray in our community groups. That Christians in this church would gather together throughout the week and pray together for one another and for the ministry of this church. And that God would do mighty things through us as we strive together in prayer. In verse 31, he concludes, that I may be delivered. Remember, he's saying, pray for me, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So that... By God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Which leads us to truth number eight, is that gospel ministry never goes as expected, but God is in control. And what do I mean by that? Gospel ministry never goes as expected, but God is in control. When Paul is writing this letter to the Roman church, at this point, he's planning to visit them voluntarily. By verse 32, he says, I pray that by God's will, I will come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And he says, pray for that. And that prayer was answered. How was that prayer answered? 
In Acts 21, we read about Paul preaching the gospel, and the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time were angry at him, and they were going to arrest him and try and kill him, but he appealed to his Roman citizenship, and so the Roman government took him into custody and sent him to Rome to be on trial. So he goes to Rome, not by his own volition, not according to the plan that he prayed for in verse 32, but he goes to Rome as a prisoner. And eventually he will lose his life under the authority of the Roman government. But while he's in prison in Rome, he writes several letters. One of them is Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 1, his perspective on his prayers not being answered as he thought they would be is not grumbling but joy because he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 and he says, guess what? I got put in prison and guess what happened? Now I can witness to the Roman guards and they're coming to Jesus. (laughs) It didn't go as expected for Paul. It won't go as expected for you. But God is in control. Oh, man. Come on. There's gold at the end of these letters. All right. Let's uh, let's pray and get ready to come to the table. Friends, what a privilege it is to receive the Lord's Supper, to lean together as a local church into the glory of the gospel. In just a moment, we're going to take this bread, which represents Jesus' broken body, and this cup that represents his spilled blood. If you are a believer in Jesus, and you need to be a believer in Jesus to come to this table, you're welcome to come with this church family. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we don't want you to do this, not because we're trying to single you out or make you uncomfortable, but because we don't want you to come to this table in an unworthy way without Christ. You need Christ. We want to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. Speak to one of the pastors after service or set up an appointment to speak with a person you know to be a Christian about what it means to be a believer in Jesus. But we don't want to make a hypocrite out of you by you coming to the table just to do some religious act that other people around you are doing when you don't really believe it. Because when we come to this table, we are confessing that Jesus alone is our hope. His broken body is what makes us able to stand before God. He substituted himself for us before a holy God and redeemed us. And his blood has washed us clean. And we come now to remember that, to consider our lives in light of that, to examine ourselves, to remember the gospel, and to run to him afresh for grace. The ushers would be prepared to serve us. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to sing a song. And as you are ready, believers, you're welcome to come to this table and take the bread. And then hold on to the bread and the cup. And I'll lead us to receive together as a family. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this picture into the gospel ministry of Paul. May it stir our hearts. May we remember the gospel. May we live for your glory and not our own. And may we lean in now to this beautiful meal where we remember the gospel and what Jesus has done for his people. He has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. May we rest in this. May we be nourished afresh by this as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.